Hey everyone, welcome to Trinity. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here on the east side. We're going to continue with worship this morning by a reading um, from the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. So if you have Bibles and you want to follow along. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we um, are grateful for this week and what we get to celebrate, that we who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, that those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. God, we thank you that you are the light that has shined on us. So we pray that even as this text and as this whole season invites us into this dual response of waiting and, and, and uh, aching and longing and simultaneously contented and hopeful and joyful. God, just help us to enter into the tension of that and to trust you to make sense of it, to find you in it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in the last week of Advent, uh, which is why we have all four of our candles going strong right now. We've been looking for the season at this idea of what happens when heaven uh, meets earth. And we've been launching out of these texts from Isaiah the prophet, who is in so many ways like the quintessential Old Testament Christmas prophet, because so much of what he has to say has to do with this promised coming one who will bring a kingdom of healing and peace and justice. We talked uh, for the last four weeks at really kind of like a narrative arc of like what happens when heaven meets earth. The first week, Jenny talked about how we have this ache that God would, uh, almost in a cataclysmic way, like tear open the heavens and come down. But actually what he normally does is show up in very subtle and surprising and ordinary ways. And then we saw the second week that we are called by the prophet, therefore, to prepare a way for him to get to us, to make the ground level, to make it possible for God to reach us. And then Sarah, last week, uh, began to tell us what happens when God comes to us and what happens is he begins to heal and restore and rebuild us so that we can become people who heal and restore and rebuild. And today we land the plane essentially with this idea when heaven meets earth and the things have been rebuilt and the broken things have been restored and healed and made new, what is on the other side of that? And the other side of that is made of shalom. This beautiful, rich word in the Hebrew that is uh, really minimized by the English word peace because it's, it doesn't cover how multifaceted and deep 
and pro- profound this word is. Shalom, as Walter Brueggemann defines it, is the flourishing wholeness of creation into the purposes of God. Or here's a longer translation from Cornelius Plantiga in his book, um, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. He writes, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator as its creator and savior opens the door and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So we're going to look at this idea today of what shalom is and why it is something that should create a great longing and ache within us, and yet also how through Jesus and in the way of Jesus, it's not like out of reach for us today. It's something that you and I could experience and find even right now, even in 2020. And so what we see, uh, first of all, in this Isaiah text, that there are really two things being held out. One is this promise of what is to come, and then there is also this potential of what is Uh, available now, what this moment we're living in right now is pregnant with, the potential for peace, for shalom, for joy, even here. The first thing we see in this text is that shalom will mean the end of darkness. Our text begins with this really stark, very like stunning, poetic little couplet, where those who walk in darkness have seen light, those who live in a land of darkness, on them a light has shined. This is, in a sense, what it means to be human, This is what it means to be a human being, to be a person who lives in a land of deep darkness. Sarah so beautifully last week talked about this idea of like cosmic advent. What does it mean for us to be a people who who live in a perpetual state of cosmic advent? It's not an advent that is going to end on December 25th. It's not an advent that will end uh, when when a vaccination is is pumped into your arm or when we reach herd immunity or when there's an inauguration in January or when the graduation comes in May or a wedding this summer or the birth of a baby or a weight loss goal is achieved or a professional success uh, uh, happens to us. Those things are not going to end the cosmic advent that you and I live in. And I am, I'm certain of that. And I'm, I'm 100% confident. One of the reasons I'm certain of that is because my own experience tells me that. I'm, f- I'm 40 years old. I know a number of you are older than me and a number of you are younger than me. But I know that in 40 years, no event, no circumstance, no person, no relationship, no achievement, no amount of money, no amount of health, no success, no acclaim, nothing has come close to remove the deep ache within me for something that can only be given when the light shines on those in deep darkness. When people live in a land of deep darkness, they live in a land where they are lacking the knowledge to make sense of their surroundings. And do you know what people do in dark? What do you do? Like when the power is out in your house and it's late at night, or maybe you're in a new space and you don't know what's going on. What do we do when we fumble about in the dark? We try to find things that help us make sense of of the space we're in. And that is, friends, what most of your life and my life is made of. People wandering in darkness, trying to find a thing, some thing, some idea, some product, some person, some political ideology to make sense of the darkness of the space that we're in. But I don't need some other thing to make sense of the darkness. I need the lights to be turned on. I need God to come to me in light. And the promise of the prophet is that this is what will happen. 
And this idea is picked up in the New Testament and they run with it. John begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word that is the logos. That's the Greek idea of, of like the, the governing principle and authority behind all things. In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God, meaning he was, uh, he was a part of God and he was God, meaning he was fully God. He was in the beginning with God. And then it says everything that exists came into being through this word, through this logos. And in this logos was life, Zoe. In this logos was life, and the life was the light of human beings. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he goes on to say, now there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not talking about himself, but about John the Baptist. And he says, John was not the light, but John came to bear witness to the light. John himself was not the light, but he came in order to make people aware and to be prepared for the light. The true light, John writes, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And that is what we celebrate on Friday of this week. That the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. But 12 chapters later in John's gospel, in one of Jesus' last conversations with his close friends, he says these words to them. He says, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Because whoever walks in dark does not know where they're going. Jesus says the light has come into the world. This is the Christmas story. Light comes into the world. It shines on us. But then Jesus leaves again and we are back in Advent. We're back in a waiting time. For a little while we have the light as a foretaste, as like an appetizer of the feast that is to come. Like this is what the Christmas season acknowledges, that we live in a, a state of ache and longing, but we have also been given a taste, a, a preview of what it will be like when the light finally breaks on the horizon and casts out the darkness. I don't know if it has ever been easier for you and me than this year to feel Advent, to feel this like sense of like waiting and eagerness and wanting it to be different, wanting it to be a different day. And, and I think that that's a really good thing for our souls because it means we're living in reality. Shalom will mean the end of darkness, and it will mean revelation. It will mean understanding. We won't be walking around in dark trying to make sense of the space anymore. The lights will turn on. Shalom, secondly, means the end of bloodshed. The background of Isaiah chapter 9 is a lot of political upheaval. So Judah is experiencing a lot of pressure from kingdoms just to the north of it. The northern kingdom, Israel, and above that, Syria, they're experiencing a lot of fear and pressure. And so because of that, they do something very foolish. King Ahaz does something very foolish. And he goes, he sort of leapfrogs over them and goes up to Assyria, that great, terrifying, monstrous empire to the far north and says, will you come and protect us from these other neighboring Nations And in, in this way, he really sort of spells the doom of his own people, that and his own disobedience uh, to God. But the context of all this is like, this is a time of great fear of war. There is battle constantly. I mean, you think about like where we are in like world history. What's going on in the world right now? Well, on this piece of land where these words were being written, on this piece of land, this is a piece of land that will be gobbled up by one empire after another for the next few centuries. 
whether it's the Assyrians and the Persians or the Babylonians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, each one more terrifying, more brutal, more, more vicious than the one before it, coming and taking the same pieces of land again and again and again, war drums always on the horizon. And Isaiah says, when shalom comes to the earth, it will finally mean for you and for me the end of bloodshed, the end of war. This is why Christians in the first several generations just understood it as being like the most natural thing as, as a people who have been on this side of, the, of that first advent, as people who've been on, the, 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 uh, on this side of that first coming of the light, they understood themselves to be a people who no longer are engaged in violence. And so Christians in the first several generations, really up into Augustine, when he, he began to work out this idea of what we now call just war, but until Augustine, Christians for the first few centuries were, were wildly and to- totally pro-life, meaning that they were against infanticide and they, they found unwanted babies in the Roman sewers and gutters and raised them in their family and they made sure that the elderly had homes and were taken care of and they were against capital punishment and they welcomed everyone into their home regardless of race or class and they saw new distinctions between those people and they also opposed military service and refused to fight in war. They refused to lift up a weapon against another person because it was incongruent with the idea that the kingdom has begun on on the earth now, there's a foretaste of it, and this is a kingdom in which the vestments of war, the tramping boot of warrior, and the garments rolled in blood are now used as fuel for the fire. They're things that we warm ourselves to and we cook our bread over. They are not things that we, they no longer belong on the people of God. Shalom will mean the end of bloodshed for you and for me. Stanley Hauerwas, the Duke Divinity uh, theologian, I heard him say this at a conference a couple of years ago and it stuck with me. He says, if in a hundred years Christians are identified as the people who do not kill their children or their elderly, then we will have done well. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be opposed to violence, to be opposed to bloodshed in all forms, systemic injustice, systemic oppression, tramping boot and cloaked warrior soaked in blood are now fuel for fire. They have no place. Thirdly, we see that shalom comes from a person, from the prince of peace or the prince of shalom. The Hebrew is sar shalom. This is one of the names of Jesus. You may want to try it in your, in your praying this week. When we pray to Jesus, we're praying to sar shalom, the prince of peace, the embodiment of it. The world knows all too well what it is like to have a ruler seek to embody a false sense of peace, which is really just the quelling of rebellion and the oppression of people under them, like the boot on the neck of the underlings, in the name of peace. Like that's what the Pax Romana was. That's what like many of even like the, the, the so-called peaceful treaties in the world today are. It's, it's disempowerment. It's, 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 it's economic warfare uh, so that we're not actually firing guns at one another. It's not the same thing as the shalom. Remember, shalom is universal flourishing. If your peace comes at the expense of another's flourishing, it's not shalom. It's just politics. Shalom will mean universal flourishing for all people, but this is not simply found through ideas or philosophies. It is embodied in a person. Jesus himself said on the last night of his life, he looked at his closest friends and he says, my shalom I give to you. 
My shalom, shalom I leave with you. My shalom, not as the world gives do I give. Do not be afraid, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, for in this world you will have much trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now think about the context of this. Jesus is at the Last Supper. His betrayer has already left the table. He is hours away from being arrested and tortured mercilessly through the night and executed at dawn. And he says, I have overcome the world. You don't need to be afraid. What is most true is that there is a victory on the horizon. And I therefore can give you my, uh, my peace. John picks this, up, this idea up later when he's writing a letter. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's our faith. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith that Jesus has, even in his sacrifice, even in loss, even in suffering, has actually overcome. That the way that the light shines in the darkness today, the way that light shines in the darkness today, the way that you and I experience the shalom in the world today is not through the, the physical presence of Jesus in the room. He can't look at us anymore and say, my, my peace I give to you. But we have faith. We believe. We put our, the substance of our hope in Jesus. Faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. It's the certainty of things that are not seen. So what does that mean? Well, let's like think really practically about this for a minute. Am I, am I actually saying to you that I think it's possible for you and me not to feel totally run over and run down by 2020? If we have faith in Jesus, if the substance of our hope and our belief is in Jesus, do I actually believe, am I actually saying to you that if you and I um, were resting the foundation of our trust in who Jesus is, that we don't have to be overcome by this year? And I would say, yeah, that is exactly what I think Jesus is saying to us in the upper room. That is exactly what I think is possible to us because the Prince of Peace has now come to dwell among us. The embodiment of Shalom has come. I believe that it is possible to live in the day and the age in which you and I live and to actually experience a longing and an ache for full consummation and yet a contentment and a peace, a shalom in the moment that we are in. And I believe that I stand on the shoulders of thousands of years of Christians who could say the same thing, who lived through far more terrible, far more vicious times in history than what you and I are living in. I stand on the shoulders of the Christian martyrs who can say that even all the way to the gallows, they can sing and hope and believe and know that they are in safe hands. The voice of the persecuted church around the world today says it is possible to live in severe persecution. And to be clear, I am not talking about the whining element in certain parts of our country that attribute uh, the, the, the removal of certain individual rights for the sake of my neighbor as some sort of persecution on the church. That's ridiculous. It has nothing to do with church persecution. If you want to talk about church persecution, talk to people in Iran and China and Iraq and India and, and Mauritania and Myanmar. And they will tell you it is possible to truly be targeted by the state and to be considered dangerous and to still be a person of peace. Jesus is greater than the suffering in the world. And the reason why it is possible through faith in Jesus to have peace in the midst of suffering is because Jesus is the only one who actually gives dignity and has integrity when it comes to suffering because God is not immune to it. Jesus is the God who suffers. 
Before Jesus is the God of the empty tomb, he is the God of the cross. Before Jesus is the risen Lord, he is the rotting corpse. And therefore, God can speak with words of knowing. He understands what suffering is like. And even in the midst of loss and suffering, he can give us his peace. I'm not saying that I've experienced this perfectly this year. In fact, I haven't even come close to experiencing it perfectly. I have looked to many things to try to make sense of this world. I have fumbled about in darkness. I have given myself over to political narratives. I have overfed myself. I have indulged. I have let sadness creep in my heart and given it too much space to define the reality. But I do believe it is possible to simultaneously be longing and aching for a future which will only come when God returns and simultaneously be content with what is before me right now because Jesus is enough. I was going through my photo uh, app the other day uh, and just looking at the year 2020. And as I was looking at it, I felt something in my spirit just say, it felt like it was from the Lord. Um, It was something like, there's been a lot of joy this year, Matthew. As I was looking at just thousands of pictures of, of my kids and being outside and all sorts of stuff, all the weird stuff of COVID, wearing masks and stuff, like I felt like I felt like in my heart I heard like there's been a lot of joy this year, and I realized like if I were to describe this year to you, uh, I probably would not use the word joy. I would probably use the word hardship. I would talk about how frustrating and how limiting it's been, how lonely it's been for so many of us, how how, how much it has failed and how how much loss there has been, especially the the older people I talk to in our church and in our community, the, the sense of like a lost year, a year that will not be recovered and the years are getting shorter and shorter. To lose a year is a much bigger deal when you're in your mid 60s than when you're in your 20s or 30s. All the loss And yet, I feel like God is saying to you and to me, like, there's been a lot to be joyful. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of contentment. There's a lot of shalom available to you and me right now. And we don't have to miss it. We can choose to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we can take him at his word. And finally, I just want to say this in closing. This is what God is zealous for. Isaiah begins or ends with these words, the zeal of the Lord will do this. And I just want to remind you what the word zeal means. Zeal is fervent, committed, dedicated, wholehearted passion. If you want to know what God cares about, what God is eager to do, sometimes we live through moments, I mean, actually, anytime we go through suffering, it's the most natural question in the world for you and me to go, where is God and does he care? If he cares, why is he he doing anything about it? If he does care and he can't do anything about it, then what good does that make God? Just the oldest questions in the world. But Isaiah holds out for you and me a promise and says, there is going to be a time, a day, a moment when the sun will shine on those in darkness, when the child will come to those in bondage. And what has been a, a, like a, a rod of oppression will become broken and authority will rest on this king's shoulders and endless shalom Endless flourishing for all creatures will cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is what God is zealous for. This is what he, um, not that he sleeps, but this is what he wakes up thinking about. This is what he is passionate for. This is what he is accomplishing and bringing about. And you and I, 
this week in the middle of a weird time to be alive, in the middle of a hard season, are invited in faith to say with confidence on Thursday night, on Friday morning, God sees me. He has not given up. He is moving towards us. In fact, he is committed to the end to bring about endless shalom for his creatures. I invite you to come to the table now. We're going to be outside taking communion, and we'd love for you to be there with us. But in case you're not able to be there, why don't we take a minute and pray the Lord's Prayer together. And just let like the words that Jesus gave to his church, let him like just come from a deep place in you. When he says, thy kingdom come. Like it's like a cry. Please God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let heaven meet earth. So let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you. You are loved. Hope to see you very soon. Hope to see you Thursday night in our parking lot. Bless you.